Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I think you're lost, son. You better get on back to where you came from. We got our tales of this place. Anger City is What'd you say? Anger City? I hate that name. Well, no offense, mister, but it's on the sign. I don't care there. what the sign says. You and me, cowboy, we settle this right now. Oh, uh, Rage, uh, we're supposed to rob the bank today. Like I said, tomorrow, right here! Uh, uh, Rage, you got that thing with your mob tomorrow? What about Monday? We doing anything Monday? Uh, uh yeah, Monday we're good. You can, you can kill Monday. Monday, right here! I'll see you then! I moved here 35 years ago. I used to take a lot of abuse from Kansans because I came from Texas. In every service for the first year, somebody was going to ask me, where's your hat? And I'm afraid I was more Brooks Brothers than I was Cowboy, but I finally comfortable enough in my own skin after 35 years to wear a hat for a minute. Because even in Texas, we were taught you don't wear a hat in the house. We have too much fun around here, don't we? By the way, the guy with the eye patch is TJ Nix. He's our graphic arts designer. <laughs> the cowboy is DJ Mahana. He's our animation director. So uh, they're good on both sides of the camera. Well, we're having a little fun because the topic is just too painful. <laughs> We are living in an angry culture today, and anger problems are arising, and it's just pandemic in our culture. And I don't know that when this series is all over that we'll have an answer for every one of the issues that you face, but it is critical to me that we at least talk about what's going on and that we understand why it's happened, and that we get some help coping with it, finding ways to have peace and not get caught up in the anger. You know, when I, I had the idea for the graphic and the title of the series. And I was actually driving on the way to campus on a Saturday afternoon several months ago, and I was thinking about how that anger and danger are so close together. It's just one letter difference. And it is amazing to me that a lot of angry people don't understand the danger associated with it. And you and I oftentimes experience the danger of someone's anger. And so what we're going to do in this series, if nothing else, is we're going to at least try to find a way to keep our peace in a world that's gone mad. Today, I want to ask a question, and it's a, it's a challenging question, and it's simply this. 
Why do people turn hostile, angry, and accusative on you for no reason? Now, I, I brought this message last night, and to be honest with you, when I went home, I was pretty depressed about the message, and I'll tell you why. I mean, if, you, if you're not new to New Spring, you probably are pretty well ascertained how I teach. I usually start off with, this is the problem, there is a solution, here are the steps you need to employ or the decisions you need to make, and here are the outcomes you can expect. And I teach that way all the time. And I, that's how I want people to teach me. Tell me what the problem is. Tell me if there's an answer. If there is an answer, what do I need to do? And if I do those things, what can I expect? But I have to tell you that this topic is like grabbing, and I told Mary Alice at breakfast this morning, I said it's like grabbing a handful of smoke because it's a complicated question. And to be honest with you, and I'm just going to lay it out there before we get into this, I mean, it's, it's so complex that this is going to manifest itself in different ways. And, and for some of us, there is going to be something that we can do. And for others of us, there's not much that we can do. But at the end of the day, as Mary Alice said, Mark, she said, this is one of the most critical messages I think you've ever brought. And we're asking the question, why do people turn angry on you without warning? Why do they turn hostile and accusative for no reason? And here is the thing. You will find yourself saying things like this. I've never done anything to this person but help them. I, I, I've, I've been a good friend to this person. I was there when nobody else was. This person used to seem to love me. I thought this person was my best friend. But all of a sudden, things change. Well, fortunately for us, we have a story in the Bible that helps us. I've long believed that whenever God devotes a lot of ink to a story in the Bible, that there's a reason for it. The Holy Spirit makes no mistakes. And one of the things that I discover about stories in the Bible that cover a lot of territory is they're almost always about relationships. For instance, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, which is one of my favorites, covers from Genesis chapter 37 to chapter 50. The story of Moses and the children of Israel spans the whole Pentateuch, the whole first five books of the, well, the four books of the first five books of the Bible. And when you look at those stories and you unpack them, so much of it is about relationships. And as I said, the Holy Spirit doesn't make any mistakes. When God devotes a lot of ink to a story, he's trying to get us to pay attention. There's a lot of, a lot of life, life lessons to learn. Today, in answering the question why people turn angry and hostile on you without warning, we go to a story in the Bible that is the story of Saul and David. Now, for many of you, you don't need any introduction because you know a lot about this story. For others of us, we're, we, we still have a whole lot to learn about it. But let me just see if I can introduce the characters to you. Let's talk about Saul for a moment. When Israel went into the promised land, God said to the people of Israel, you will not need a king, I will be your king. Wouldn't it be wonderful today if God said, I will be your president, I will be your king? I mean, wouldn't we be way better off? I mean, I think that's one thing that all of us could agree who are wise people, wherever we are on the political spectrum, it would be so great if God would just be our leader. And God said to the people of Israel, I will take care of you. I will supply your needs. I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will be there for you in every way. God said, you will not need a king. But Israel went through a time of rebellion, and you can read about it in the book of the Judges, and a lot of bad stuff happened. And the people of Israel began to say, our problem is that we don't have a king like other nations. Now, there was a leader in Israel. He was a spiritual leader who was a sort of conduit between the people and God, and he was the prophet Samuel. And when Samuel heard the people begging for a king, he felt like they had personally rejected him. But God said to Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Give them what they want. 
You know, sometimes I think we have the fear that the worst thing can happen to us is God will not answer our prayer the way we want him to. But you know, sometimes the worst thing that can happen is when God answers our prayer the way we want him to because we just demand it and God says, all right, I'll give you what you want. In fact, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about this in the Psalms. It says God gave them, the, he gave them their requests, but he sent them leanness of spirit. They were asking for a particular kind of food, and God said, they got fat with what I gave them, but I sent them leanness of spirit. What a term. And so God said to Samuel, listen, they, they want a king. They, they, the people even said, we want a, we, we, we're embarrassed. Other nations have a king. He leads them out on parade days and all that kind of stuff, and it looks real cool. God said, all right, give them what they want. I'm going to give them a king that looks good. It was not God's choice for them. It was not God's will, but God said, okay, and he gave them a guy named Saul. And whenever you, look at the, whenever you look at the life of Saul, and this is pretty well carried out for us and explained for us in the book of 1 Samuel, it is interesting. Saul has four letters in a word that begins with S. If you want to sum up Saul in one word that's got four letters and begins with S, it's self. If you want to know anything about Saul, it's self. Everything is a referendum on him. Everything is about him. And whenever things don't go well for him, then Somebody's got to be blamed for that. And even when God gives him instructions, Saul runs them through the grid of what he wants to do. And this time, and we'll see this in just a few moments, God said, enough of him. I want to bring the guy to the throne who is a guy after my own heart. God did not find him in the palace. God did not find him in a mansion. God found him the eighth of eight sons out watching sheep, a shepherd. <laughs> God found this kid that nobody expected anything big to come out of him in the future. I may be talking to somebody here today, and you are, David. This is not what I want to talk about. And you can be male or female here. I'm not talking about gender here. It's just you have the character of David. And, you know, when you were in school, I mean, you got overlooked. You were one of the last people picked. And People didn't expect a whole lot out of you, but God has worked and moved in your life, and now you're doing extraordinary things. And God said, I want this guy. And, and ultimately, God will send Samuel to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and Samuel's just sure that God wants him to anoint one of the older sons. And God kept telling Samuel, I don't want this one. I don't want this one. I think God was basically saying, I've already got one like this. I don't want him. And finally, when Samuel had tried to anoint the first seven sons, I mean, David didn't even come. The parents didn't bring him. They figured if one of their kids was going to get anointed to be king, it definitely wasn't the run of the family. They just left him out guarding the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, do you have any more kids? He's got one. Yeah, he said, but we didn't expect a whole lot of him. And, and then I know it had to be a Baptist audience. That's where I grew up because Samuel said, go get him. We don't eat till he shows up. I'm guessing they, they got out there and got him and brought him back. And here's this kid, this teenage kid that stands before Samuel, and God says, he's the one I want. Pour the oil on him. Now, for a while, both of these guys, Saul and David, are on the stage at the same time. God's already given up on Saul, but Saul's going to be on the throne for a good while. David is the new choice. And for a brief period of time, their lives are going to overlap. And it's that overlap that's going to be very important to us today. Because these guys represent two kinds of people. 
that are in our world today. The narcissist user and the cause-driven person. It is amazing to me how that these two types of people span the history of the world. The narcissist user and the cause-driven. And for us today, whether we solve any problems or not in our personal lives, it is critical for us that we get these very straight. Now, I know that some of you have studied psychology, and I understand that there's a classical definition of a disorder called narcissism. But there's something going on in our world today. What used to be an occasional disorder has spread to the culture at large. It's, it's as if it's in the drinking water. And you and I are living in an age of entitlement and anger. In fact, anger always goes with entitlement. I mean, anger follows entitlement like night follows day. Because anyone who is living with a sense of entitlement, I hate to say this in in case we have any narcissist user who sneaked in today or is watching online or on television... I hate to tell you this, but the rest of the world will not devote their life to you. I know that comes as a surprise, but the rest of the world simply refuses to revolve around you. And so that's going to make you disappointed, and in your disappointment, you're going to get angry. I want to say it one more time. I know I've said it twice already, but anger follows entitlement like night follows day. It's like gravity. And so I don't think I need to let you know that we have a culture that feels more entitled every day. And of course, the people who feel entitled find all kinds of reasons to be disappointed. And ultimately, they become victims and then angry. And then we get this cultural anger, this blast furnace that you and I are living in right now. And of course, social media has given it voice. And I love social media, and it's got so many good uses, and I'm thankful for it. But at the end of the day, all I'm saying is you don't need to have me speak about this. All you have to do is just look at comment threads of things that people say today. So what we're going to see in this story, we're going to see the distinction, the difference between a narcissist user and a cause-driven person. And by the way, parents, this is, this is really not in my sermon today, but please, could we raise our kids to understand that the world does not revolve around them. I mean, you say, well, I, I tell my daughter she's a princess. As long as that means your love and affection for her, that's great. If you communicate to her that she rules the world, that is not a good thing. I mean, for your son, you want, you want to affirm your son, but on the other hand, if you make him think that he does no wrong, then you're raising a sociopath. Just being honest. I mean, we live in a world that's getting angrier all the time, and it all comes down to this. There there are two groups of people in the world. There are narcissist users, and there are cause-driven people. In other words, by cause-driven people, I mean... They believe in something bigger than they are. Everything in life is not a referendum on them. It's a referendum on what needs to be done here. When we know who David is, David's right up front. I mean, when 
He goes out to meet his brothers who are soldiers, and this is when David is still a teenager. There's this nine-foot-tall giant out there trash-talking the people of God, and he's, he's intimidating them. He's basically saying, look, there's no reason for our two armies to fight each other and a whole bunch of people get killed. I'm the strongest man the Philistines have. Pick your guy out. We'll go mano a mano. If I win, my whole side wins. If your guy wins, your whole side wins. No reason for everybody to die. The people of Israel, or the guys in Israel, just cowering in their tents because nobody wants to take Goliath on. And up comes David, and David says, hey, nobody should be allowed to trash talk God like that. What, what happens to the guy who whips this giant? And his older brother Eliab was upset with David, and he said to David, why don't you just get on back there with your few sheep? And that's where David lets us know what he's about. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 29, David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause You just about put that on his tombstone because David lives his life as a cause-driven person. Whether he's tending his father's sheep, whether he's killing giants or he's king of Israel, David is all about the cause. And all you have to do is read the book of Psalms to see that he's all about God. He's all about what God wants to do. Things are not a referendum on David. So how, how are Saul and David going to intersect? David kills the giant. I mean, David walks out there with a bag of rocks. I mean, here's this teenage kid going up against a nine-foot-tall giant. David takes a bag of rocks, drops him, kills him, cuts his head off. Israel wins this extraordinary victory, and that's how Saul and David get together. And here's the thing. As soon as David kills the giant, Saul looks at him, New Spring heads up, because some of us are going to start getting help here. Saul said, there's somebody I can use. I mean, you know, here it was a great opportunity. If Saul had been what he should have been, he would have said, thank you, God. You just brought this extraordinary young man in who's going to win all kinds of victories for your side. I mean, if he'd been a great king, he would have been so ecstatic that God had answered his prayer by sending David. If Saul had been cause-driven, that's what he would have done. But instead, he said... What some have said when they dated you or even asked you to marry him, here is somebody I can use. (laughs) Now, right up front, one of these two men understands the dynamics of the relationship. One of these two men knows exactly who each other is, and it's not David, it's Saul. Saul knows he's a user. Narcissist users know they use people. It's in their drinking water. It's in their DNA. So Saul understands. He knows that that he's a user, and he knows that David is cause-driven. And Saul is saying, I will use his cause-driven personality to get what I want out of him. David, on the other hand, heads up New Springers. David thinks there's a real relationship. When Saul puts his arm around David and brings him home and has dinner with him and the family and says to David, hey, David, I want you to be a commander in my army and I may want you to command the whole army. David's like, wow, this is great. I have this great friendship with Saul. I say this to us today because there's a real, real strong chance that you're a cause-driven person. I, I really think the reason why you pick New Spring coincides with the fact that you are cause-driven. So today, I want to give you some help. 
cause-driven always assume that other people are cause-driven too. In other words, if, we're, if you're driven by a cause, you just want to assume that everybody is. I mean, if you believe in something that's big, if you believe in something that's a quest, if you believe in something that's really, really transcendent and important out in the world, and you're doing everything you can make it happen, whether it's like having a great family or a great marriage or a great career or changing the world, you, it's your assumption that everybody's, oh, here's a big one, speaks your language. Hmm. Well, somewhere down along the line, there's going to be a train wreck between Saul and David. And for the rest of this message, I want to explore the dynamics of the David-Saul relationship. And you have to know, I feel so inadequate to do that in 20 minutes. Because this story covers a lot of space in the Bible. You'll find it in 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 31. It's really interesting. It, it reads like a great book or a TV miniseries. I really believe you'll have a hard time putting it down. But I'm going to ask you when you get time to read this. One more time, it's 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 31. Because I'm going to make some points today, but I'm not going to have enough time to underscore those points with the narrative. And if you read this, I think it'll even make more sense to you. So here we are. We have about 20 minutes left. Let's go back to our question. Why do people turn angry on you when you haven't done anything but good to them? I had to ask this question very early in my life. When I was just turned 22, I had just graduated from college, and I was called to a church in Houston. I'd, like I said, I was very young. I'd just turned 22. But the pastor of this church in Houston had heard me speak. He had, he'd, he'd seen me. He had conducted a conference in the church where I was a pastor on staff when I was in my senior year in college, and so he began to pressure me to think about coming to Houston. He was in his 60s. I had just turned 22. Now, when he first called me to Houston, to this church, I think he had the feeling that I was a safe choice. And in so many ways, I was. But I think he had the idea that, well, this, this, this guy is such a kid that I will bring him here. And that's tragic, I think his thinking was, he will not be any kind of threat to me. I had never had anybody turn angry on me. I'd been raised, I mean, I'd come up under my dad. I had ministered in the churches that were pastored by his friends. I had, I had seen the very best of what pastors were and ministry leaders were. But at first, when I, before I came to town, this pastor, he went out on point and he said to the congregation, if you don't receive this man, you don't receive me. If you don't love this man, you don't love me. But as we're going to see with Saul and David, sometimes events happen that are out of your control. And this was definitely out of my control. I wasn't even on the pastoral staff yet, but I was asked to come in and preach. Back in those days, we used to call it preach in view of a call. That means preach to see if they want you. And I preached a simple 25-minute message. And I don't know what happened. I mean, God just really came in that service like I've never seen before or since. I mean, in those days, we used to have invitations. We have too many people here. We can't, we can't, we're too congested. But we used to have invitations at the end of the service where people wanted to make a decision. They could come forward. And most of the time, the invitations lasted about a minute or two long. We sang a little Just As I Am. Then everybody went out and got lunch. Well, the invitation began. And I got to tell you, the invitation lasted for well over an hour. 
I mean, people started coming and accepting Christ, and about you know, 25 minutes into it, it looked like maybe it was going to come to an end, and all of a sudden, the pastor's granddaughter, who was a teenager, stood up about two-thirds of the way back and began to cry out, I'm not saved, and then she came forward, and a bunch more people came, and 55 people made decisions that day. And all of a sudden, this church is like, of course, I didn't bring that. God brought that. But they're like, we got to get this guy here as fast as possible. And when I first came, when I first went to Houston, God began to work and God blessed. I mean, it wasn't a particularly large church. It was a church of about 200, a little less than 200 people, but it quickly grew to 300. And all the ministries that I was part of just exploded in growth. And at first, the pastor was so excited for me. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I mean, I, and I loved him. I, I loved him so much. I learned so much from him. He just began to act in a bizarre way. He began to just become hostile to me. I mean, he would do things that were wrong and then ask me to take the blame for them. And in bizarre behavior, I mean, there would be times he would come to the church and he would say to me, I don't trust you. And then he would turn around and leave for three or four weeks and then tell me, don't let anybody else do anything, which means I preached every sermon. I led every song. I led the teachers. I wrote all the adult Sunday school material. I preached every funeral, preached every wedding. It was bizarre. So like I say, I had, to, I had to get some answers early on because I said what I talked about at the beginning of the message. I thought I've never done anything but good to this person. I love this person very much. Everything I do is to make him a success. And I could not understand why this person would do a 180 on me. So how does it happen? What goes wrong? Well, I want you and me to watch carefully as we explore this Saul-David relationship. And your situation will be different. None of our situations is exactly alike, but I'll bet you're going to see similarities in the principles. So let's go to the Saul-David story. Let's unpack the narrative. Let's pick it up where I dropped it a few minutes ago. David kills the giant. Saul brings him home. Saul says to David, my house is your house. And, and David thinks to himself, wow, this is so cool. This man loves me, and I love him. He's my king. I'm going to do my best job that I can do for this guy. And so, as I said, Saul has put David as a commander over the army. And David's popularity grows. He wins time and time again. But it's okay at first because David's wins are going on Saul's resume. Like I sort of suggested about my situation in Houston, when you have this happen to you, you'll probably step on a tripwire and not even know you stepped on a tripwire because you just think differently. And so it blew up on David. I mean, it all came down to a song. Can you believe this? I mean, here's a king, and here's now the commander of the army, and it's all going to blow up over a song. David is coming back from winning a victory over the enemies of the people of Israel. And the women are lining the streets and they're singing. And they begin to sing. And they sing a song that says, Saul has slain thousands. Well, that's a great thing to say about any military leader. One man, Saul, has slain thousands. Saul's like, I like that. It's got a catchy tune. I think it's going to go right to the top of the charts. But it was that second verse that got him. Because the women saying, Saul has slain thousands, David has slain ten thousands. Oh, David didn't have anything to do with the song. He didn't write the lyrics. 
I mean, after all, I mean, really it's not, it's not an embarrassment for a king. His job is to rule. I mean, his job is not to command the army. So really, if you think about it, Saul should have said, wow, that's a great song. You know, my job is to get a commander, and, and they think I'm doing a good job, and they think he's doing a good job, and it's all about the cause. <laughs> no. 1 Samuel 18, 8. Saul did not like this, and he became very angry. He was jealous and suspicious of David from that day on. This wasn't a mood that passed. It was a change. It was a breakage in that relationship, and it would never be the same again. Now, given the fact that I only have about 14 minutes left, I have to say the next 13 chapters are all about Saul's attempt to destroy David and David's trying to cope with a world that he cannot understand. And if you're hoping for answers, if you're in that situation today, I believe I've got some help for you. But most of all, if you walk out of here today, you may walk out without any answers for the specific situation that you're in with the person who has turned hostile on you. But at least I believe you will understand what is happening. See, if you're a cause-oriented person who has, a, new, who has a, a narcissist user who's angry at you and you're trying to interpret what they're doing and saying through the way you would say, the way you would talk and think and behave, you'll drive yourself crazy and you will leave yourself vulnerable. Okay, I'm going to say one of the most important things I'm going to say on stage today. Narcissist users and cause-driven people cannot understand each other. They may, use the same, they may use the same vocabulary, but they use a different dictionary. So if you're a cause-driven person, one of the biggest problems that you have is when a narcissist user talks to you, you will interpret what they're saying through your cause-driven personality, and it's going to mess everything up. And if you hear what they say, instead of understanding what they're really saying, you're going to wind up getting gaslighted and even thinking it's your fault. So here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to translate what they're saying into accurate statements. And the next time you get into one of these discussions with a narcissist user, then I want you to hear these translations. This way you won't get gaslighted and wind up wondering out how did I become the perpetrator and how did this person wind up being the victim? So here we go. Here's the first thing that a narcissist user says when they turn angry. I owned you, but you broke out of your box. See, when Saul saw David kill Goliath, he said, I can use this guy. Now, in Saul's mind, here's a teenage kid. He comes out of the sticks. He comes out of nowhere, but he's got some kind of mojo going for him. And so Saul is like, I can use this guy, but he's a kid. He will not be any threat to me. But all of a sudden, God begins to bless David, and God begins to grow David, and God matures him, and God expands his territory. And one day, Saul wakes up and says, wait a minute, this kid has outgrown his box. I owned him. I owned him. But all of a sudden, he's, he's too big for me to own anymore. And, and one more time, I want to make this point. David didn't even have the first clue what was going on in Saul's head. I think I saw this a lot when I used to counsel. A controlling person would wind up marrying a cause-oriented person. And somehow in the dynamics of that early relationship, 
the controlling person was able to communicate that he really loved her. But the time came where she began to mature and grow and develop. And all of a sudden, he realized he couldn't control anymore. And that can work just the same way with the other gender combination. And one of the reasons why that marriage will turn toxic and hostile is whatever that guy or gal is saying, what's really being said was, I owned you, but you broke out of your box. And now I can't control you anymore. Here's the second statement. I don't know the difference between my friends and my enemies. See, this is, this is one of the things that will, if, if you have to be in a close relationship with a narcissist user and you're a cause-driven person, this one will just drive you crazy. Because what you will notice is this narcissist user will push away everybody who's trying to help her. He'll put, this person will push away everyone who loves that person and they'll bring in the most toxic people who hurt them all the time. I preached this for years. The second worst mistake you can make is thinking your enemy is your friend. Horror movies are built on that platform. You know, you're watching the movie, and here is an innocent person, and, and you know this person in their life is really the enemy, but that person thinks they're safe with this person. The second worst mistake you can make is thinking your enemy is your friend. But the worst mistake you can make is believing that your friend is your enemy. What we're going to watch, if you look at those chapters between 1 Samuel 8 and 31, you're going to watch Saul push away all the people who love him. He pushes away the prophet Samuel. I mean, when God rejects Saul, Samuel cries all night. He pushes away David, who loved him so much. I mean, here is the commander that God sent to Saul to be a blessing to the people, but he pushes David away. Jonathan. (laughs) All right, this is not in my sermon. How do parents like Saul sometimes wind up with kids like Jonathan? I wish somebody would explain that to me. And then how does a parent like David wind up with an Absalom? That's above my pay grade. That's another sermon. Jonathan, I think, is perhaps the hero of the Old Testament. He's the reason why our oldest son is named Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's the crown prince. But Jonathan knows that the hand of God is on David. And Jonathan says to David, you're my friend and I love you. And and God wants you to be king. And I'm just going to be right there with you. And I'm going to help you all the time. I know I'm the crown prince, but you're the one who's going to be king. And I'll just do whatever you need. I'll be your David. But we're going to watch in just a moment as Saul pushes Jonathan away. He has a daughter, Michael. Well, we'll see in just a few moments. Well, let's just read this. Here's the thing. People who spend their lives using people are not capable of love. They may be capable of what the culture calls love, but they're certainly not capable of, of real love. I don't even think they're capable of loving themselves. Let me show you a picture here. Saul is trying to destroy David. Now read this verse with me. Saul's daughter, Michael, fell in love with David. And when Saul heard of this, he was pleased. Now, if you put a period right there, it would sound like, okay, maybe Saul is learning. His daughter falls in love with David. And Saul's like, this is a good thing. Read the rest of the verse. He said to himself, I'll give Michael to David. Oh, I will use her to trap him. Hmm. 
his own daughter. I shared with you a few moments ago how that Jonathan loved David, and when Saul was trying to kill David, Jonathan was defending David to his dad. Listen to this language. Saul boiled with rage at Jonathan. You stupid son of a... I'm not going to use the word. He swore at him, do you think I don't know that you want him to be king in your place, shaming yourself, and hello, shaming your mother? What did Jonathan do to shame his mother? Saul just called her a bad name. Which, by the way, Christians, we live in an age where filthy-mouthedness has become part of our culture. We need to hear what Jesus said. He said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you can drop the F-bomb and you're a Christian, I think I'll just let Jesus' words stand for themselves. As I said a moment ago, I, I, don't think, I don't think narcissist users are capable of love. They can't even love themselves. Third statement, your success is punching a hole in my myth. See, here's the thing. Cause-driven people live for success. And I don't mean necessarily personal success. They just want the cause to succeed. Narcissists have to employ a myth So they don't really accomplish anything in life, but they have this myth going. And the tragedy is they believe the myth. And so here is David. David is enjoying the real success of a cause-driven person. And now Saul looks at David and he said, your success is punching a hole in my myth. Have Have you ever noticed that narcissist users can create all kinds of havoc but when they're brought to account for it, they somehow wind up as the victim. Can I get a witness on that? I mean, these people cause all kind of trouble. Everybody knows they cause trouble. And yet, whenever they're called to account, somehow they manage to be the victim. How do they do that? Real simple. And I don't have time to teach this, but let me just throw this out because I think it'll help some of you. While you were busy going to college and getting educated and building a career, While you were doing all those creative things, they are honing the myth. And so consequently, they're very good at spinning the victim narrative. By the way, why does anyone want to be a victim? I hate hate the feeling of being a victim. I mean, if I'm hurt, I need to be honest about being hurt. But I don't want being hurt to change my status. I'm not a victim. I am an overcomer through Jesus Christ. I mean, people may do bad things to me, but I, I am... I am God's child. I I refuse to be a victim. One of the things that we'll discover is that frequently there's a form of laziness that goes with this. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 16, the Bible says lazy, not necessarily physically lazy, but common sense lazy. Lazy people think think they're seven times smarter than the people who have really good sense. I'm guessing somebody's face is coming to your mind right about now. Again, we're translating the statements of the narcissist user. Here's number four. I was messed up before you got here. See, in Saul's mind, his problem was David. And in time, I think David actually began to believe that Saul's craziness was David's fault. But here's the thing. We don't meet David till chapter 16. What happens in verse chapter 15? Well, Saul disobeys God and he rationalizes and tells God that he really did what God said. And God finally gives up on on 
Saul. And in chapter 16, verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you go on grieving over Saul? I've rejected him as king of Israel, but now get some olive oil and go to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. This is when we first meet David. So see, Saul is messed up before David gets to town. (laughs) And David doesn't know any of the stuff that happens in chapter 15, and he walks right into it. Saul will tell David it's all his fault, but David, David doesn't understand that Saul was having problems long before David got to town. A few moments ago, I told you about what happened when I went to Houston. And this went on for about a year, and I didn't want to even tell Mary Alice what was going on for a long time. I would just go and kind of take it, and, but I would come home, and Mary Alice could just tell that something was troubling me. And she would say, is everything okay? And I would I'd just pass it off. But the time came when he started taking verbal pot shots at me from the audience, and the church was beginning to pick up on it and come to my defense a little bit. And I grew up with a dad who was everything good about the pastorate. And one of the things that my dad had taught me when he knew I was going into the ministry, he he said, son, you never heard of church. Whatever you have to do, whatever you have to eat, whatever you have to accept, whatever you just have to... Grin and bear, you never heard of church. And so because of that and because I saw the situation, I thought, well, he must have been fine before I got here, and I'm his problem. So Morales and I are going to quietly leave. There were churches that wanted us to come. And so I just quietly left. See, at that point, I'd actually begun to believe that I was a problem. I've spent the last 40 years of my life trying to figure out whether that was the right thing or the wrong thing to do. Because as I said, the church had grown to about 300, which was large for that church's size. But after we left, all the stuff that he was saying to me, he began to pour out on the congregation. The congregation dropped to less than 50, down to 25 people. See, he had problems before I got to town. So what do you do, and I need to close the message out with this. What do you do when you're a cause-driven person and a narcissist user is turned hostile on you? Well, these aren't universal, and and I know that your situation, you're going to just have to hear these principles and employ them as you're able to do it. But here's the first one, and this is so big. When you've done everything you can do to reason, when you've done everything you can to communicate with this person, you have to employ space and boundaries. We read how that David tried everything he knew how, but when the situation was obvious, we just get these three words in 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, then David left. Number two, you can't let this person begin to define your identity or life for you. They may never change. You have to see yourself in God's eyes. You have to take care of your own mental and emotional wellness. And that's where putting distance and boundaries comes in. I love 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, when David was going through the worst of Saul's oppression. The Bible says David was greatly distressed, but he encouraged himself in the Lord as God. So there has to come a point where if you're a cause-driven person and you're being gaslighted by a narcissist user, you got to say to yourself, this person is not in control of my destiny. The accusations that they make are not accurate. I am God's daughter. I am God's son. I am who God says that I am, and I'm no longer going to be gaslighted by this person. Number three, give it some time. Because you don't know if that person's going to change. Saul never changed. 
Could I have just a few extra minutes today? Tell you what happened with the Houston story. I left in 19, at the end of 1979. And a year or so later, the pastor of that church invited me back to do a conference. And I thought, well, maybe he's changed. But when I got to town, it was very clear that he was dealing with political ramifications of my leaving that were in con- I mean, I did not know this until later, but the chairman of the board, who was the pastor's best friend, stood up in a meeting and said about me, if we let this man go like this, God will take his hand off our church. So he invited me back to do a conference in the hopes of calming the congregation down. And I was excited. I went back to preach, but he was hostile to me the entire time I was I can tell you that's not easy to speak for six days in that situation. And that was in 1980, I think. So things changed. 1985, I go to Kansas, and God begins to bless, and, and I just really kind of move on. But in the year 2000, I went down with Dan and Debbie Kubish and several others to a pastor's conference in Houston put on by Jim Symbol at Brooklyn Tabernacle and also Warren Wiersbe. And God began to do some extraordinary things in all of our lives in that conference. Mary Alice has often said she believes that what ultimately happened at New Spring, God began in my heart in that Houston conference. And one afternoon in the middle of the conference, when there were afternoon sessions, I said to Dan and Debbie and the others, I said, guys, you go ahead. I've got a place I want to go, and I've got a little errand to run. So I took the church van, and without even calling the pastor, I, drove, I hadn't been to his house in over 20 years. I drove to his house, knocked on the back door like I used to when I was on the staff, and they invited me in. We had a good visit. And as I got up to leave, because I had to get back, I started to walk out, and the pastor said to me, he said, uh, Brother Mock, everybody's brother in Texas, you know, and he was from Virginia, so words that didn't have R's in them did, and words that, you know, did have them didn't. I mean, when I was leading worship there, he would say, sing another stanza, Brother Mock, and uh, So he said, Brother Mont, can I walk out to the car with you? So he did. He walked out. And he said to me, I did some awful things to you. And I'd forgiven him long before. I forgave him before I left Houston. I said, Preacher, I don't think about those things anymore. I just think about the good times. And then he did something kind of peculiar. He kissed me on the cheek. He was in his 80s at that point. And he said, I've told my family that when I die, now you think about this, I was only there less than two years. He said, I've told my family when, you, when I die that you've got complete control of my funeral. And I did, I preached his funeral, I preached his wife's funeral. You know what he said to me before I got in my car? He hit me with point two, that's why I know, that's why I know point two. He said, sometimes you just don't know who your real friends are. This and I'm finished. Understand that no one turns around. Here's the thing. This is, I know I'm late. I know I'm late. So many times we bang our heads against the wall trying to change a narcissist user. No one turns around until they humble themselves before God. You can't do what only God can do. And you've got to let, and here's the thing. Sometimes you have to let that person hit a wall. Because we always want to cushion it. You have to let a person hit a wall. And who knows? Maybe they'll turn around. Could I have, I know I'm late. Could I just have three more minutes, please? (laughs) See what wearing a hat does to me? 
the week before I left Fort Worth to move to Kansas back in 1985, there were some people that I wanted to see. They were kids that had grown up with me in my church, but had gotten out of church and gotten away from God, and I thought I may never see them again, and I want to just go see them before I leave. One of the guys I wanted to see, he was a guy named Richard. When we were both kids, I think I was 12 and he was 11, his family came to our church for the first time, and and he came and sat with me during the service. And when my dad preached that day, he was, Richard was moved by the message. So I leaned over to him and I said, would you like to go forward with me in the invitation? And my dad will talk to you. And Richard said, yes. And we went forward in church. My dad led him to the Lord. And we became best friends. But it's the oldest story in the books. When he got into high school, he got in with the wrong crowd, started drinking and using, hanging with the wrong people, and blew his life up, got into some trouble. Long before he'd gotten out of church and so that was when we were teens, but now here I am, I'm, I'm 28, I'm about to go to Kansas, and I've tried to go talk to him, I've tried to go talk to him, and every time he would just say, oh yeah, Mark, someday I'll, I'll do that. But the night, I think it was the night before we moved up here, I went over to see Richard, and, and it was a bad thing. I mean, he was, he was stoned, I mean, it was, it was a really, really rough place, there was a whole bunch of people living in the same house, we would have called them hippies if it was 10 years before, but that was too late for hippies. And you could hear loud cursing and stuff from inside the house. And he came out to meet me on the wooden porch, shirtless, shoeless, drinking. Hi. And he said to me, why don't you give up on me? Why, why, why do you just keep coming over here? And he laughed at me. He laughed at me. And it really hurt. And I hate to say this, but I gave up on him that night. I said, I'm getting back. I mean, I, I'm getting back in my car and moving to Kansas and did what I could. That was in 1985. I don't think it's around 2005 or six, seven, somewhere in there. I was sitting in my office on a Sunday afternoon and my phone rang and I picked it up. And he said, hey, Mark, I haven't talked to you in a long time. And he said, this is Richard. And he said, uh, you know, I just want to kind of catch up with you and tell you what happened in my life. He said, you know, yeah, that night you came to see me, I was in bad shape. Sorry about that. But he said, I started dating a gal, and real good gal, but uh, she said to me she wasn't going to date me unless I went to church with her. So he said, I started going, he named the church, started going to this church, and he said, listen to the preaching. God began to work in my life and begin to deal with some stuff that was wrong. And he said, you know, he said, I came back fully to God. He said, Mark, I'm a deacon in the church now. And he said, you know where I've been before I called you today? He said, I've been at the prison preaching. And he said, I've been listening to you online. I just wanted to call and say hello. See, I couldn't do what God did. And some of you love a narcissist user. And here's the thing. I haven't even said this today. I could be talking to somebody who is a narcissist user. It is part of our culture today. But if you will let God work in your life, if you will trust God to work in that narcissist user's life that you love, God can do what you and I can't do. Thank you for the extra 10 minutes. God bless. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.